Hello and welcome to Women Talk Work, a podcast that's all about exploring the diversity and complexity of Australian women's experiences of work. I'm Claire Conroy. In this episode, I chat to Michaela Jade, founder and managing director of InDigital. InDigital is a startup company focused on bringing Indigenous cultural sites to life for visitors to country using an augmented reality application called Digital Rangers. Digital Rangers also has significant potential application in preserving stories and important cultural knowledge for Indigenous communities. Mick is a Capricorn woman from Sydney with a background in, in environmental biology, science, innovation and human-centred design. She started her career as a park ranger in Queensland and has worked in park management, environmental program and policy and public sector innovation roles in state and federal governments. Despite working with Aboriginal communities for many years, she only discovered her own Aboriginal heritage at the age of 29, and her identity as an Aboriginal woman has had a significant impact both personally and professionally. Mick is currently based in Jabiru, a town in the Northern Territory surrounded by Kakadu National Park. In this chat, recorded at the end of 2015, we talk about what led Mick to start in digital, the challenges of being a startup founder, the journey Mick went through to discover her Aboriginal heritage, the best and worst career advice she's ever received, and how her role as a mother and partner has impacted her work. Mick, thank you for joining me for this episode of Women Talk Work. I'm One of the reasons that I was really interested in talking to you is that we kind of know each other personally a little bit, and, and I've been following your journey on social media over the last couple of years, and I'm really interested in... I guess validating some of the kind of the assumptions or the story that I've built about you from from what I've kind of heard and seen. So this is a really op- a great opportunity for me to, um, I guess t- to to test and to validate what what I think is is been happening for you. So you're currently managing director of InDigital. Can you give me a little bit of background as to 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 what you do and and why you founded that company? Okay. Well, thanks very much, Claire, and um, I'm really happy to be on. Your podcast, it's really a great experience for me too. I'm podcasting from Jabberoo because, um, you know, remote area, you don't always know if this is going to work out. So, well, fingers thanks crossed. very much. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I started in digital in July this year after um, going through my first company with Ruth Myrams, which is Paramody. Um, I really started in digital because I realised through the paramedic journey that my real gift um, to my people and my community is empowering Indigenous people, in particular women, um, to develop business opportunities for themselves that are based around the digital economy. Um, And I was fortunate enough to take that journey to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues this year in New York. And um, I guess that experience really validated that that's what I'm here to do right now. Um, So that's why I decided to to pursue InDigital. I really thought the name aligned really well with what we do. So part of my work is working across tertiary research and other innovative companies to look at what tech is coming into the industry and be a bridge, I guess, between tech development and innovation and Indigenous peoples. Um, So I live in Jabiru, which is a really remote area of Australia in the middle of Kakadu. So we live in a World Heritage area. Um, And I saw a really great opportunity to work with Binning Mungai people here um, to develop their digital capabilities. 
one of the things that I'm really passionate about is not widening the gap um, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And with the digital economy, I just saw um, I saw it widening because, it, you know, it's a really long time and a really long lag phase before um, technology comes out into these communities. And it's a really missed opportunity for humanity because our people see things so differently to people that are in the cities um, and and non-Indigenous peoples and we have a lot to offer in the innovation um, spectrum and a lot of great innovations happen in the bush and not just Indigenous people but non-Indigenous people too that don't always get the opportunities to go to commercialisation um, because they simply lack the networks to help them make that happen. So, yeah, that's kind of the the ethos of the company and what we're here to do. At the moment, we're rolling out um, our augmented reality digital storytelling app, Digital Ranges. Um, so work with Binning Mungai people at the moment to share their stories with visitors to their country through the app, and that's a really exciting project. Um, and as part of that, I've been able to talk to the community too about how we might use virtual reality and how we might um, help them manage country more effectively through the use of drones and things so it's um it's really exciting work and it's work that I'm finding not a lot of people are doing so I feel really privileged to be in a position to offer that. So can you just talk a little bit about digital ranges because I think it's a um it sounds like a, a a really unique offering can you just talk about from the user perspective how you envisage the digital ranges experience would work? So Digital Rangers is an augmented reality app that's targeted at the tourism market and basically it turns people's mobile device cameras into eyes that can see cultural stories in the landscape. Um, so what you could do is go up to an Aboriginal rock art site um, in a remote area and once your phone locks onto that image, so it could be... Um, it could be a Baramundi or it could be you know, a Mimi or any sort of figure that's been painted onto the rock. Um, it'll lock on and the, tr the traditional owner from that country will come into the phone and tell you a story. And that can be animated, it can be face to camera, it can be just audio. It really depends on the complexity of the site and, and what the aspirations are for the traditional owners. And a really exciting thing that has come out of working with this technology in a remote area is that the sparks that fly in the community when I introduce them to this kind of technology because they just think about things that, you know, I didn't really think about before and the application of these technologies, which is why I really enjoy doing this work. And so, you know, one of the traditional owners to, said to me today that they're so excited about what this technology offers them for their younger generation mm. and, and for their legacy once they pass over. And that was a really interesting discussion for me because the people here are very, very, um, you know, they still have strong connection to their country and language and story and, you know, there's all these thoughts that go through your head about how will how do we ethically digitize culture in these sort of circumstances and you know I was really surprised that they were thinking about their own legacy in a digital environment mm. yeah it was really it was a really powerful conversation today and I was really excited by it and you know also with great excitement comes great responsibility <laughs> so, yeah. so what does your your day-to-day -day on on working on this 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 project in this company 
look like? Are you involved in development? Is it mainly kind of marketing, relationship building? What actually occupies your time during the day? Yeah, all of that. Mm. (laughs) So I think that's the thing about being your own company owner is that you have to be everything. Um, So, you know, I generally wake up. I'm thinking about, okay, what, what's the best visitor experience that can be offered? What, who are the people that I need to speak to? I mean, when you arrive in a new community, um, it can be really hard to navigate your way around the community and understand, um, you know, how you speak to traditional owners here versus how I would speak to my own traditional owners back at home and, um, you know, who are the people that want to, um, want to influence in this space and who are the people that don't want to. So that really takes a lot of navigating and I just spend, honestly, a lot of time just talking to people about who I am and about why I'm doing this and about the opportunities that it provides to them. Um, and also really understanding how they see the future of this um, happening. It's like I said before, it's really exciting to have those conversations and a totally new idea is born from just just introducing a piece of new technology into the community. Mm. So I really love that and I really, you know, I want to play a role in helping connect these guys to people that can help them along their own journey to start their own companies. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, I do that. I've also gone through a huge investment proposal um, through the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. So that's a Prime Minister and Cabinet initiative um, looking at supporting Indigenous entrepreneurship. So a lot of my time has been involved in developing business strategies and developing financial plans and looking at market gap analysis. And I've even undertaken a diploma of business management and entrepreneurship because I realised being a scientist that that was a really weak point for me. Um, so I thought, well, I better educate myself about everything to do with taxation, everything to do with you know what my responsibilities are as a director of a company. Um, and through that, I've been able to create some fantastic entrepreneurial networks as well. So, yeah, I've been doing B-School, mm-hmm. which has been really fantastic um, to fill those gaps that I had in my own capabilities. Mm. Um, and then I've got lots of inquiries um, to field as well. So I try and do my best to field those inquiries. And really now it's just um, a lot of scheduling Mm. and trying to work out what 2016 looks like for the company. And, you know, I'm looking at having to recruit people. And, yeah, so that's going to be a new part of my journey for the company. Exciting. One of the things that I was interested in exploring with you is how your own exploration of your identity as an Aboriginal woman has influenced or, I guess, infiltrated into your what you do for work over the last few years and, and how that those those things have intersected yeah um so it's been quite dominating in some parts of my life yeah. um I think you can probably imagine when you grow up learning one story about yourself and then you find out later in life that that's not the real story can you talk about um, what what that experience yeah was or what so so um, I, I descend from the Cabrigal people, so I'm a Cabrigal woman from the Dutta people. And, you know, our peoples are one of the first peoples to be influenced by colonisation. And as a result of that, you know, we had a lot of um, family history of um, discrimination and, and, you know, not having access to things throughout you know, the generations before me. Um, so a decision was made 
long before I was born in our family about not identifying. So um, the com- I found out later on in my life that this is quite common in Aboriginal communities that um, people would say that we were Indian or we had Samoan or we had other um, influences in our genetics that weren't Aboriginal because basically anything was better than being Aboriginal. Right. Um, yeah, so I found out quite late that... Um, I was a Caribbean woman, and so how old were you when you? Twenty nine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and can you can you just kind of share the story of that that discovery and how that um, yeah yeah I guess how that came about. Oh my god, it's such a long story, Claire. <laughs> um, so when I was eighteen, I left Sydney. Um, so I was studying environmental biology, and I left Sydney because you know, I wanted to go out and have a career, and I'd always wanted to be a park ranger. So since year four, I, you know, I was a junior ranger at school, and I knew that that was what my pathway was. So I sort of did everything that I could do to um, become a park ranger, um, which involved leaving Sydney because basically the reality was there was no jobs um, for graduates in Sydney to get into the National Park Service. So I went to North Queensland um, and volunteered, and I was lucky enough to be offered a position up there. Um, so I was able to finish my degree through correspondence, which was quite challenging in your early 20s. Um, and, yeah, so but when I was there, I was often asked to work with the Indigenous community and I really didn't know why. You know, I was 21 and I was being involved in some quite heavy negotiations that had intergenerational impact um, mm. for the people I was working with. And I kept being asked to do this work and I sort of went, okay, well, why me? I'm a really young person from Sydney. I don't really know. I hadn't had much contact with Aboriginal people growing up and I just, I really sometimes felt a little bit uncomfortable but a lot of the women and well, sometimes men but mostly women um, would identify me as Aboriginal mm-hmm. and it happened a lot um, through my career in Queensland and then I thought, okay, well, that's a bit... Um, weird maybe you know maybe I look like somebody that resonates with the people that I was working with in Queensland but then I went to Western Australia to work for Department of Environment Conservation and the same thing happened so (laughs) the people over there identified me as Aboriginal as well and I was I was sitting in a joint pipe management meeting one day and a traditional owner who was a very strong woman um, came up to me and she said what's your name girly and I told her my name and she said, no, your other name. So I told her my other name and, and so that was said, it, like you told her your, your maiden name or your family yeah, name? Yeah, my family name. And she goes, ah, oh, thoughts are you're Aboriginal and you're mob here and you need to go see these people. And so it was kind of a that moment where time stands still and I was going, okay, this is probably like the 18th time someone has said this to me. <laughs> um, I better do something about finding out. So I spent a very long time trying to uncover my history and I didn't have the support of my family initially because, um, you know, it was a long-lost family secret and they didn't want to unearth histories of the family and, you know, some people in the family found it a little bit embarrassing, didn't want to talk about it. So I couldn't really ask my family and um, one day I was just really upset and my sister just went and did it and she went and asked my grandfather (laughs) and within five minutes I had the name of my ancestor, all her family history um, and all the pieces of the puzzle basically fell together. So it turns out I descend from the first of the five stolen generation children um, from Governor Macquarie Um, and, and yeah, it's quite an amazing 
amazing ancestry to have and one of the prominent figures. And, and this is the one thing I learned about my family is that it's very matrilineal. There's very powerful women all the way through my family history. So um, I guess I'm very lucky to be able to draw strength from those women. But um, one of them was Lucy Burns and she was the first Aboriginal person to lobby the government for um, access rights. Um, and we have all the historical documents of her doing that. And then, you know, she had children and their children were the first Indigenous soldiers and the only recorded Indigenous nurse in First World War and also had family in Second World War that were Indigenous soldiers. So, yeah, there was a lot of history to uncover there. Um, yeah, wow. So th- this sounds like it's been a huge period of kind of like personal exploration about your own identity. Yeah. And and then so did that then kind of spark your interest in in having um, I guess kind of working with indigenous people become explicitly more part of your your work experience as well or how, or how did that kind of journey um, mm-hmm. begin? I think I always I always had a very strong connection to the country that I grew up on. Like I'd you know, run away from home and spend hours in the bush building things and (laughs) playing with okas and all that kind of stuff. I just inherently had that in me. And I think I explored my connection to the natural environment through an environmental biology degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I really enjoyed that, but it left me somewhat unfulfilled and I didn't know why. And I think this is the thing that I learned from working with people around the world now through the Indigenous network is that people, we inherently have a strong connection to country and if that's not realised, you can have problems in your life. So, you know, I suffered really um, severe depression before all this kind of came together for me. And, you know, I had a suicide attempt and, you know, things just got really horrible for me. And, I, you know, after talking to other women in particular, I find this is a thing with people that have these connections to to place and to culture that are unrealised. So I think having that and feeling whole, like I really do feel whole. I understand where I come from and I understand how my actions affect, you know, the next seven generations that come after me. Um, I think that really gets me out of bed every morning. Mm. So, yeah, I don't see myself as um, the work that I do is living for today, like today, tomorrow and and seven generations ahead. So I think sometimes that can help and sometimes that hinders because mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes I have to do things in my company that seem really irrelevant to the um, the broader goal of what I'm trying to achieve but are necessary. So I have to try and balance um, my vision for the future and the stuff that has to be done on a day-to-day basis, which I sometimes find really difficult. Mm. Can you take me through the... Um you, at least from my perspective, have, have, I guess, over the last four years had quite a transition in terms of your, how you would define yourself in terms of your work from um, public servant into entrepreneurship, small business, consulting, um, and then in, into the role that you're doing now. What's that been like for you? What what kind of pushed you to make each of those different leaps? Um, so public service... I love the public service. I'm kind of a public service refugee (laughs) still. Um, I really believe in what the public service tries to do and does. Um, So 
I you're guess, a Commonwealth public servant, just to clarify, working in Canberra. Yes, but before that I also worked for two state governments. Right. So I had, you know, well, I had a long time in the public service. I think it amounts to about 14 years, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I love the public service, but what I didn't love and what I found more and more frustrating about the public service was um, opportunities to explore. And, you know, I, I really love now that there's a, a really strong innovation agenda from the Prime Minister and I wish that when I was in the public service that we had that. But at the times when I was in the public service, innovation was thought of as a nice-to-do thing. Um, and I, I knew that there were things that we could do with the stuff that was being made and there was better ways to use it. And I really wanted to explore that. So I got into human-centred design and jamming and that was such an amazing and fun time um, straight after the public service because, you know, I got to go to Brazil and, you know, work with human-centred designers all around the world on making um, making the jam better that we were doing. So what's a jam and just for people so, who uh, yeah. you think of it as something they spread on their toast? Yeah, it is that and I do love making jam, I have to say. Um, but a, a public service jam or so we've we kind of co-initiated the Global Gov Jam, which still runs, um, is is a really intensive 48-hour um, service design event um, where it, each city or location is given a secret theme to work on at 6 p.m. local time and then um, you, you work in teams around an idea and take it from the idea to the shitty first draft. So you have to make a prototype that's the aim of it. And it's a doing, not talking event. So that was really fun. And, you know, I, we had a few clients that we did work um, around that model for, which was really, really fun um, and really interesting. You know, I got to do deep dives into worlds that I had never, ever been in before. Um, so it was quite a, um, it was a life-changing part of my career, um, I guess. And it was fun. Um, but I think... I think what we were worried about was um, viability of the company and I think that kind of drove the work that we did from then on. So we were really focused on growing and I think because we were focused on growing, we actually lost focus of what we were doing. And I, my mum actually said to me, Mick, I don't know what you do. And at that moment I just went, oh, I don't know what I do. Yeah, <laughs> I the explain it do. to your mum test. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, if I can't explain this simply, then I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And, yeah, I really felt that, you know, I didn't actually know what I was doing. I knew that I loved doing it and I knew that it was really diverse and, you know, I guess because I'm one of those capable people, I can be dropped into different environments and pick up different roles really quickly and I really enjoy doing that. But I think that was a real, you know, that was a real failure of the first company, I think. Mm. Um. So starting out again, um, my key driver is actually focus. <laughs> so I found that by focusing on digital ranges has really, really helped me um, in this company and I'm really excited about the potential of what I'm doing because I'm focused, I know exactly what I'm doing, I have a business strategy, I have a financial plan um, and I have people that want to work with me. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely the lesson was knowing what you do and being able to say it to your mum and dad and have them understand um, and, yeah, and sticking to it because a lot of people 
Um, they say to me, oh, Mick, we can, that's a really cool idea. We could do this and that. And I know exactly how hard it is to get a product into the market now. Like it really takes two years from, you know, research to getting it out there. And it takes you know, hours and hours and a lot of financial investment, a lot of waking up in the middle of the night and, yeah, it's really hard. So <laughs> I pick and choose what I do really carefully now because I, when I commit to someone to do something, I know the journey ahead and I'm, I, I can't afford to be distracted by other things. So you're saying you say no more, um, even though it sounds like it could be an exciting idea or it's got potential, it's, yeah. you're, you're making a, a conscious decision to kind of say no and, and focus on, on the, yeah. the core offering of your business. Yeah, and that's been hard and, you know, the art of the graceful no is really difficult to master mm. and, you know, I do, I, because I'm excited by life and opportunity, I feel really sad when I have to say no to things now but I know that I have to because mm. I, I'm only one person and I can't do everything. Well, I wanted to ask you about um, the role of, of I guess, finding a partner from a business rather than a, a romantic or life partner. Um, <laughs> uh yeah, how important you think to have that kind of partners in crime or, or like a tribe, you know, to support you kind of feeling like you're part of a um, a group or a network of people that and surrounding yourself with people that get what you do and supporting you. And I was just wondering if you can if you can share your experience um, in that regard. Yeah, sure. So um, I had Ruth Murrams as my first partner in crime in my first company and that was the best. Like we were best friends, we still are really good friends and, you know, we lived together, we did it before these other companies that are coming out now and saying, oh, why don't you start up and also live together? So, so <laughs> um, why, on that note, why did you choose to live together? Um, because we were both coming out of public sector careers and we both realised that for the company to work financially to like, have an income we'd have to make some savings around our lifestyles Mm -hmm. you know able to do that so I think we worked out by sharing a house like you know we lived downstairs and I lived upstairs um with my family um I think we saved like $45,000 a year so yeah it was a, a strategic move because when you're starting a company every dollar counts and yeah, so we, we saw that as a really quick way to save some money for the company, which it did, which is great. Mm. Um, yeah, and, you know, we respected each other's privacy and, you know, it worked out really well. So, um, yeah, that's that was the reason behind that. But, mm. um, yeah, it was um, having partners in business can be really good. Um, it can, it can, you know, I guess I was lucky with my business partner because we're both fairly flexible mm. and, you know, both intelligent people and both people that can um, have emotional and, like, empathy. So that really helps. I think if you had the wrong business partner, it would be, like, a really difficult journey. And I've seen a number of people um, really have really horrible times in their companies mm-hmm. because they haven't been able to complement each other's, you know, work style or, um, you know, or agree on things or even just work out a way to not agree. Um, so that's, you know, it's sad watching people go through that. But I think um, at the moment I obviously work alone a lot, but I also work with an extensive network across the whole world, which I'm so excited about because, you know, I've met people through the United Nations work that I'm doing. Um, people in this community are amazing in Kakadu. Um, 
And, you know, I have a lot of um, mentors and peers that are also doing the Australian Rural Leadership Program with me that are a fantastic support and resource. And, you know, I've got really a lot of people that if I'm stuck or if I need information or if I just need a shoulder to cry on, I've got a lot of people. Um, that mm. For me, I'm just so lucky that, you know, I, I have a lot of networks and I'm just, I just feel really blessed by all the people that I have in my life now. And yeah. Yeah, people don't always agree with what I'm doing um, and I, I like that they say that and I can understand why they say that because they're open and honest with me and I think that's really important in your network. Yeah, I um, I certainly see from the, the kind of things that you share on social media and certainly the experience that you had at the UN, it seems that you you have a lot of passion for supporting the work that other people are doing all around the world in terms of supporting Indigenous people and community and um, that, that that's something that's really important to you and you obviously draw a lot of, um, I guess, satisfaction and, and, and purpose from that um, shared kind of network. So I think that that's, it sounds like it's a really important part of um, yeah, what you do both professionally but also personally. Yeah, it was um, it was really nice. I spoke to Pamela Craft today, who's in New York. She owns, well, she doesn't own it, I guess, but she's the CEO of a foundation called Tribal Link. Um, she's one of the most incredible women I've ever met. And we were talking today about about what she does in bringing all these people together um, just before the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues um, and the kind of life-changing impact that has by being able to work with people from all around the world, understand what they're going through and be able to share your experiences with a group of people that go, oh, you know what, I just get it. Mm. Um, Yeah, and I said to her, you know, you can have all the education in the world and don't get me wrong, I really value education. It's so important. But I don't think education alone is enough to make the kind of changes that I want to make. Um, And it's definitely knowing people, you know, just having people to say, yep, that's a really good idea or what are you thinking, that's crazy, um, and being able to offer their advice. Like a lot of the um, the women in particular that I have around me are older women and I really respect the generations that have walked before me and, and what they have to add to the mix. And then, you know, I get to work with young people as well and, and hear the narrative that's going on in their community. So I, I guess being a putting yourself in places where you don't belong is a really important thing to do, I think, for your career. Mm. And, yeah, I think I've really benefited from being able to do that. You know, I get to walk in the agricultural and rural world through rural leaders. I get to walk in the international Indigenous rights world through the United Nations. I get to work in the scientific world. I get to work in the technological world. I'm just... I'm very lucky and I think that's because I deliberately put myself in places where I don't belong because I just want to learn... Um, how other people walk through the world and what they're experiencing because we're all really experiencing the same thing. There's a lot of dots that can be joined and I think it's really exciting when you can converge with groups of networks, like networking the networks, and see what comes out of that. Mm, that's, that's really interesting. Um, another question I wanted to to touch on was how the the choices that you've made in your personal life have intersected with what's possible in your work life and vice versa. And you, you mentioned this um, decision to change your living arrangements, which was 
largely motivated by a, a financial business decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a mum, and yep. um, and I, yeah, I, I guess I'm exp- interested in exploring that part of your role as well. How mm. has um, how has that part of your identity shaped some of the choices you've made around work and and vice versa? Yeah, um, yeah, being a mum is an amazing experience and you know, it's not something that you could ever learn in university or yeah. any other kind of I place. wish you could, though. I wish you could do I a know. course on it. Yeah. Well, I always ask my mum why she'd tell me about half the stuff that happens and she's like, because I would have never had grandkids. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I've kind of got a weird parenting arrangement at the moment. So um, my partner took up a role in Kakadu, which, you know, was a really great career opportunity for him and I wanted to support him to do that. And um, so I'm separated and my kids live with their dad in Canberra at the moment. Um, So trying to work out a long-distance custody sharing arrangement is what we're going through at the moment. And, you know, I get to spend big time, like a chunk of time with my kids so they get to live in both worlds, I guess, which I think, you know, it depends on your parenting perspective. It's not ideal, um, but it also offers them a, a lot of different opportunities that maybe other kids don't have because they get to see both sides of the coin as they're growing up. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how long that arrangement will work, so <laughs> we're yeah. just seeing how it goes. Um, yeah, so that's sort of my parenting situation which is a little bit different um, to most career moms but what it means is that you know I can work my ass off when the kids aren't here um, but when they're here I don't work I spend the whole month with them we go and do stuff we go camping we go hiking we spend time with binning like we we do a lot of things that um, most kids in Canberra don't get to do so and so that's something that having your own business having that control over your work experience I guess that affords you that flexibility to to be yeah. able to accommodate that kind of um, parenting arrangement. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that is that was always one of the draw cards for me um, in going out on my own was <laughs> being able to schedule life around my kids and my, um, my I guess, unique living arrangements. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, in some ways it's been really challenging but other ways it's been really rewarding. So, um, yeah, I guess there's no right way to to bring up your family and our family is a little bit different but you know the kids are happy and um they're getting experiences and yeah and you know making it work for um my company and my partner and yeah it's it's a little bit different but it works it works one of the things that i spoke about with viv mitchell in one of the earlier episodes she's got five kids and she's also on a entrepreneurship journey at the moment and I spoke to her about the the things that she thinks that being a mum has given her. Because I think that sometimes when we do talk about parenting, becoming a mother in the context of a career, it's very easy to think about the limitations that it places on your career and, you know, your ability to work as many hours or your your focus being split between work and, and family. So in what ways do you think that your experience of being a mum has actually enriched your your abilities professionally? Ah, uh, yeah, there's so many ways. I mean, I'm such a different person in my work life to when before I had kids. Um, I guess there's that, always that selflessness that happens. Um, I think women that don't, do have kids 
have an element of selflessness that comes from being a mum and for caring for other life forms. <laughs> um, sometimes I look at my kids and just go, wow, I can't believe I'm their mum. Mm. And I love seeing the world through the lens of a child. Like when I'm do, I share my work with my kids, and because you know, it's a lot of it is is fun work, and a lot of it appeals to kids. And you know, they're kind of like my ground truthers, I guess. When I'm developing something new, if the kids really like it, I know that it's got a good chance of surviving as a product. Um, and I just love the way that the kids can adaptively play with um, digital technologies. They like they're like community here. They just come up with new ideas all the time, and I just really love that. Um, and I think like honesty and being able to explain things simply is also something not not to be to dumb things down, but to explain them in a way that people can understand quickly. Um, I think my kids have really helped me do that. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, some of the work that I do is very complex and. I'm always, and because there's language barriers involved as well, a lot of the time, like the community here, English is their second and third language. So being able to think about how I would, I would talk to my kids about um, the complexities of what I do really helps me to, to be a better bridge between two worlds. Um, yeah, so I, they just inspire me too. Like I love that the kids have an unlimited sense of possibility. And I think I really get really sad as adults that we forget about that. Yeah, and I and guess when you're working in a in a in a in a role that's all about kind of innovation and and kind of exploring new ideas and and kind of pushing boundaries, things that haven't been done before, that's a really nice mindset to to have. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, and the other thing too, I think, is you can get unbelievably tired from being a parent, um, but. You always know that you survive the next day, no matter what's happened the night before. And I think sometimes when you're in the middle of the night doing stuff because it needs to happen for your company, that that, that can really get you through those times as well, because you know that you can survive on no sleep. Mm, yeah, because you've done it many, many times before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to to ask perhaps just two final questions, and one of those was the the question that I emailed you earlier, which is about the best or or and or worst career advice that you've um that you've received okay well I was having a think about when you sent those and there's two really strong examples um that I'll share with you but firstly something happened today where I met a traditional owner who's a very strong woman here and she met me and she looked me in the eye and she said you're a strong woman and I was a bit like, well, okay, that's not the first thing that I'd normally say to someone. Um, and I realised that I used to see that as a warning, but now I understand that it's an invitation. Mm. And I think um, being, being a strong woman, when you sort of grow up, you have this narrative of strong women being domineering and inflexible and um, difficult to work with. And I think as I've gone through the last four years, I... I don't think that that's a challenge. I think that it's an invitation to join join strong women and strong women to me are not any of those things. You know, they're resilient and they're flexible and they're empathetic and they 
you know, and they're not afraid to admit that when they're wrong, like, and that's one of my favourite things to do now is talk about the times that I stuffed up <laughs> monumentally. Um, and they're very human and they're the women that I surround myself with um, now, which is really, I just wanted to share that because I think mm. today that just dropped and I was like, oh, yeah, that's why. That's why I'm working with all these people because <laughs> I understand it as an invitation. Um, so the worst advice I ever received was when I was working in the government and my supervisor said, Mick, stop asking why and just do as I asked you to do because there's things that you don't know influencing this decision. Wow. <laughs> get back in your box. Yeah. Get, and um, anyone that knows me knows that the quickest way to get me to do something is tell me that I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that was the worst career advice I ever had and you know, I talked to the person about it afterwards and they said oh it's just you know we're all under pressure and it's really difficult to work with people that you know want to ask why all the time and I thought well that's why we keep making the same mistakes because no one does ask why yeah and yeah so you know I think it's really important to ask why and ask the five whys like don't just stop at the first one just keep going until you really understand the problem behind the problem yeah um so yeah I think that was probably the worst advice. And the best advice came to me through a quote. Um, I'm on the board of an international Indigenous women's knowledge network um, that operates out of Georgia in WA, uh, sorry, USA. Mm. Um, and the founder of that foundation said, a nation is not conquered until the hearts of its women are on the ground. And what did you take that to, to me? Um to me, that means, you know, it can be a nation, it can be a home, and, like, I think things aren't really truly broken until, yeah, until the hearts of its women are on the ground. And, you know, I think there's, that's the point where there's no hope. So if we can empower women, and we, that means we empower kids, we empower communities, we empower business and entrepreneurship, I think it's a really strong way to lead the community forward. So... Um, one of the, I guess, the six foundations of, of Indigenous women's knowledge are healthy women, healthy mothers, healthy children, healthy traditions, healthy homes and healthy communities and, and environments. And that can all happen by empowering women. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably the best advice. I mean, I often I have advice all the time from people, which I really welcome. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of them are like, oh, that's good, just go and do it. <laughs> um, so, but I think that one really resonated with me because I think the work that I do is not for me and it's not necessarily for my kids either, it's for all of us. Mm. And, yeah, I think it's really important um, to really empower women to do what they need to do because, I, you know, a lot of it is my own fight but with myself but a lot of what I've been able to achieve has been because people have believed in me and people have empowered me, um, you know, to sometimes do crazy stuff. I've sometimes been empowered to make mistakes, which have been great for me because I've learned from them. Um, so, yeah. Um, so the, the final question that I wanted to ask, and I think that we've touched on this a little bit um, through our conversation today, was the role of um, kind of purpose and values and how 
they've driven your, your some of the decisions that you've made around your work. And what I wanted to know is how how you explicitly or, or kind of consciously think about values and think about planning and, and goal setting and how those things align. How does that work for you in, in practice? Okay, so a lot of that comes from my community, I guess, to start with. So we have, you know, a lot of community values that I hold true to myself at being part of my community. Um, and that's your your Indigenous community or the community yeah. where you are now? What, what, what um, do you mean by my, community? Yeah, so my, um, my peoples, mm-hmm. Karibal peoples. Um, and, uh, you know, I also hold a lot of values to be true with the broader Indigenous community in Australia and the world as well. So we share, you know, we share a lot of common values like, you know, what com- what's best for the earth comes first is one of our values. Um, yeah, and then how that transpires into planning um i think my values drive the why of what i of why i'm doing things so i can always go back to that point when i'm getting lost in financial planning or i'm getting lost in business planning or i'm getting lost in pitching to investors i always i always start with why and i can always go back to why um, and that helps me keep focus on what i'm doing um, and the other thing that that I've really drawn from is a group called Pollinizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they developed a really fantastic book called Startup Focus. And in there um, is a really important chapter on pitching because I think that was really one of my huge weaknesses. Um, and they've got a pitch deck, which I just love, and that helps me. Like I fill this out for my company and it helps me always return to what I'm doing whenever I'm doing something. So you actually and, have something written down and articulated that you can yep. actually go back to and, and look at. Yep, I do. And I do that most days too because I – and I'm always ground-truthing, okay, well, this is what I thought in my head. Is this what's actually happening when we're delivering this stuff on the ground or do I need to change what the narrative is um, of what we're doing because what I thought was going to be the truth is not actually the truth on the ground. And fortunately that hasn't happened too many times. Um, but I always do try and make those two connections on the written word on paper and the actions on the ground. I think it's really important that they align. Um, so, you know, I always talk about you know, what the problem is that we're solving, what the solution is, why it's a huge opportunity, who we're doing this for, who else is doing this, why are we better, how do we make money, because, you know, every, everyone has to eat. So <laughs> I really, from coming from a public service career into a commercial career that was the worst question I used to hate answering that question Mm. and it it frightened me because in the public service we don't generally do things for money even though what we do involves a large sum of money we don't that doesn't drive the decision Mm. Um, whereas you know it has to in the commercial world because otherwise you just don't eat and that's not good for anybody um why, why the team can do this? So I, um, I contract my team. So when I need to do stuff, I, you know, I've got contractors that I use and we all work together collaboratively to do something. Um, and then what we're doing next and what we need right now. So they're the questions that I answer on a monthly basis and I always ground truth myself as to how we're going um, against all those criteria. And you, you write those down and so that you have those to refer to. Yeah, and I, I carry them around in a book. I've 
you're not going to believe this, Claire, as much as I love digital technologies, I have gone old school analogue with my planning. <laughs> yeah, right. And that works for you. That's something what about handwriting or having yeah. it physically recorded that you can that you can return to. It's important. Yes. And I think because I'm kinesthetic, but also because I work in a world that involves ones and zeros at the end of the day, I know what happens to ones and zeros and I'm a little bit scared of of what that means. So I, I know that with a piece of paper, it's all good. Yeah. I am um, one of the things that really um struck me or that I recall from reading Julia Gillard's book um, was that the importance that she found in writing out her kind of two-page manifesto, the like, like the why I'm actually here, why I'm doing it, and the significance that she placed on having that in the kind of physically articulated in her drawer that she could physically pull out and refer to, particularly in those times of self-doubt or feeling like there were conflict. And it sounds like that that's actually a, a really powerful um, reference to to have to have that that physical documentation of of your your goals or your why um, yeah yeah in some form it is really important and I draw on that document all the time now <laughs> and I don't know how I survive without it actually yeah. <laughs> which is a you know probably one of those things about why I couldn't explain what I was doing because I hadn't written it down I didn't you know I couldn't answer those questions and now I can answer them really easily and quickly and if I'm feeling stressed about something I know that it's just there on the paper and I can get it out and I can read it yeah yeah great so where can people go to find out more about you and what you're doing with digital ranges and and other projects yeah so I probably put my stuff on Facebook about digital ranges because one of the amazing things about working in the community that I work in is that most people are connected through Facebook more than any other platform so I choose to to do my comms through Facebook. I so it's do just digital ranges on Facebook? Yeah, so just facebook.com forward slash digital ranges. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have any digital one, but I tend not to populate that at the moment. Um, yeah, and sometimes I'm on Twitter. And I sort of, I did develop a web page, but because the community that I work with don't really do web pages because internet is dreadfully slow on a lot of these um, outstations. I haven't really done much work on my webpage, which can be frustrating for people sometimes, but, you know, it's the, the nature of the beast at the moment up here. So the, you mentioned, um, I don't know how you refer to it, like launching a site in Canberra fairly recently. Is yeah. that something that people can go and visit and use and do? Um, if they're really really want to have a go of it, um, I can send them a link to download the thing. But I have, because I'm waiting to formally launch it with a family whose story right. it is, um, I don't really want to release it publicly right. openly because I think that would be really disrespectful to mm-hmm. Tangana Core people and, and the family of Ruby Hammond. And I'm, I'm working on a project with them now to come up to Canberra so we can have a big launch at The Rock. Sure, right. So um, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a public app at this point in time or...? No, it's no. not public. Um, yeah, because I want to respect mm-hmm. the people that we work with. And, you know, while it would be really exciting to go and put it on iTunes, I, mm. it's just not the right thing to do. Is so. that their goal eventually that these kind of things would be available on iTunes and people yeah. in place would just go and download them and, and, yep. and have that experience? Great. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, we, we need to get a, a decent bank of stories up as well. Mm-hmm. So that involves working with 
communities all around Australia and, you know, as you can imagine when you're negotiating to, to, to share people's ancestral stories on a new platform, it takes a lot of work um, to not just make sure people are comfortable with it but make sure that the right person is telling the right story for the right place and everything. It's a little bit more complex than just telling stories from non-Indigenous perspective. Um, but, yeah, I do think it's really we will launch for Ruby Hammond's Rock um, and I think we'll probably do a soft launch for the next sort of collection of sites mm-hmm. um, after that. Great. So the final question to wrap up is that you've spoken a little bit about the advice that you've been given. If you had some advice for someone who was thinking about starting their own business, what would it be? My advice to people wanting to start their own business is to respect the fear that you have about doing that (laughs) because I think it's really important to understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, But mostly I think it would be to to make meaningful connections with other people and not just other people that can help influence what you do but where you can add value to others. So I think it's really important to share, um, you know, it can be as simple as sharing some advice or it can be sharing connections that you might have um, with other people but I think it's really important to to pay it forward because so many people have done that for me and I just I think it's really important to be able to do that and not just make connections with people like it. I know I find at business events I don't really like them very much because I'm a little bit shy and I don't like just going shoving my business card in people's face. So I I try and make connections with people because we have some common ground or we have really divergent ground but there's something common that we're working towards. And, yeah, I'd rather just have those open and honest conversations with people rather than like the speed dating business card sharing kind of thing that goes on so yeah and I think the way to do that for me or I found really successful is to to go and be a participant in you know whatever is your passion so you know if your passion is tractors go and find the tractor group and participate in it as a learner Mm. yeah and build those connections yeah um Mick, thank you so much for taking the time to um, to chat to me tonight. I think that's been a really interesting discussion and has, um, I think, really provided a really great demonstration of the ways in which kind of life and personal identity I- intersect with, with work identity and they're, they're certainly not kind of separate parts of um, of, of identity and, and I think it's been really great to hear about um, your journey and a lot of great takeaways that um, – from your experience that probably other people can apply to. So thank you. Oh, no problems. Thank you very much, Claire. It's been amazing to talk to someone not in Jabiru (laughs) (laughs) about this. Yeah, thank you so much. After the interview formally ended, Mick and I kept chatting for a while and some of the content was uh, so good that I wanted to include it in the podcast episode too. I I think that's really nice about... um, kind of like what you're doing about like preserving wisdom I think is really great and um, because kind of like I don't know like wisdom or information is one of those things that like that you need to access at different points and sometimes when it's presented or when it's available isn't when you need it yeah and so um, yeah kind of having that like wisdom on demand kind of um, yeah is is 
I don't know. I, th- I think that that's that's you know really really interesting as well. Yeah, it's been really interesting work here because I you know the purpose of digital ranges was to economically benefit Indigenous peoples for their stories, mm. and which it will do. But the other thing that traditional owners are talking about here is saying, well, can we have another channel for our people? That's just our people. Uh. So we can do our secret sacred stuff through this and, you know, auntie's too old to travel up the hill now but maybe she can still tell us the story and when we go there she can be there telling the story. Do you think there's a, like, um, a, do you see kind of anxiety in communities about, um, I guess, like elders or oh, yeah. people like not knowing if they'll be able to do that or I don't know or, yeah. All around the world too. So when Ruth and I first started on this journey, we spoke to 300 elders about this and we said, what are you proud of? And they all said, we are so proud of being humanity spoken history. Mm. We're like, well, you know, that is something pretty cool to be proud of. What are you most afraid of? And they said, we're most afraid of being the last ones. And this is a thing that's happening all around the world, everywhere. They're all afraid. Why the last ones? Because they have no one to pass it to, or the people that they want to pass it to don't care about it, or what? Like, what is? Yeah. You know? So I said, why is that? Because you know, I would love to know my stories, and I would love to know my yeah. language and you know, cultural law and things, which you know, sadly for us is probably not possible anymore. Like, we can reconstruct language, but you don't. You know, it's just a language without stories. <laughs> um, yeah, they they said because the kids are always in their phone. They want to go and be American gangsters. They want to do hip-hop. They're not interested in coming out of the country and talking with us and walking yeah. and learning. They always want to be on the technology. And that's when I just went, well, why don't we put it in the phone then? If that's yeah. where they are. <laughs> go there. Go there because, you know, it's fairly addictive technology. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wonder if there is that thing about um, like the – like the giver has to be ready to give but the receiver has to be ready to receive and like I now you know as I get older I I I wish that I'd had different conversations with my grandmother before she passed away and um and like I can't have them now and I think the thing that about um kind of real-time conversations is that the the age gap will always be what it is like you'll never have the ability to ask your mother as a 30 year old what she was experiencing then um and you know as you get older she also gets older so that that kind of that that age difference is preserved so you never really get the opportunity to kind of ask questions at different points in time depending on what your needs are and what your level of maturity is yeah. so um yeah i think it would be really sad for for kids who are kind of in their phone now or want to be american hip hop gangster whatever to kind of find themselves in 10 or 15 years thinking like I wish I could have asked that. Like I care about this stuff now, or yeah, um, I can see it happening. Yeah, it'll definitely happen, and you know that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this work is mm. because I know that's going to happen, and I know that yeah. that's what, what they're going to be asking themselves. And you know, once someone's passed over, it's too late. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying we need to record like every aspect of everybody's lives every minute of the day, but there's really important bits of wisdom mm. that humanity can't afford to lose. Yeah. So why why is, um, and maybe we should record this on the podcast or maybe I can inject this back in, like why is having an augmented reality experience or having kind of like the visual and the kind of experiential kind of 
part of it more powerful than just writing or recording the audio of these stories? Because that's how our people translate story and knowledge. And story is not about story. It's about survival. Okay. Um, And the way that you give a story is to be present and you have facial expressions and you use your whole body when you're telling a story. And that's possible through augmented reality. Mm -hmm. It's not possible through a sign or a, a book or, you know, and like I said, some of these communities don't even speak English. Um, or have very limited English vocabulary. So um, often what's happened with our people over time is that our culture has been presented through a Western lens and so the context Mm. of what was being said is not always what the context was or why things were being done is not always the reason why. Mm -hmm. So... Being able to do it through augmented reality means that um, our people can express themselves in a way that they would ordinarily express themselves to their children or to visitors to their country using their whole body, using Mm. their lips, using their eyes and using those pauses as well. I think pausing Mm -hmm. is a really strong thing that Indigenous storytellers do really well Mm. and you can't just... You can't manufacture that pause because it has to happen at exactly the right point in the story so people have that time to to reflect on what they've heard on Mm. before you can move on to the next part of the story. Yeah, no, I I, I totally get that in a sense like the um, kind of the integration of the physical environment is important too to be able to have people kind of like, you know, like showing things in the environment as well and actually kind of like be talking about – physical things that are present and and using um, kind of like the physical environment to elicit story and and like having that combination of those things is sounds important as well. Yeah, well, it is because you can be in a place like, I don't know, just in Kakadu, like the smells of the different seasons mm. are really important too and the cicadas and mm. just everything that's happening around you. It's like a sensory overload. But if you're sometimes when people are, or reading a story or they're even hearing a story, they're focused on that and it takes the storyteller to go listen to the cicadas and then people go, oh, yeah, you know, I wasn't yeah. hearing that <laughs> until you just pointed it out. So, yeah. yeah, you can do all those kind of things. And I'm not saying that augmented reality is the silver bullet here. No. But, but it is a tool that we can use to help. <laughs> Worth exploring. Yeah. And, you know, if, I'm really conscious of digital sovereignty too, so I make sure I work with communities to... So firstly, they own the data, mm-hmm. but, you know, and they can destroy it if they want to. Mm-hmm. They're in control of it all the time and they know where to get it and they know how to access it. So um, it's a really important part of what Digital Rangers is about. It's, you know, the front of front end of it is nice for tourists, but the back end of it is heavily mm-hmm. engineered so our people um, don't miss out on the intellectual property rights. You mm-hmm. know, I think that would be the most horrendous thing to happen to people. And oh, absolutely. You do see companies working with people and going, oh, you know, we can do this and it's going to be the silver bullet and put all your information in here. And, you know, in my lifetime, so I'm 36, I'm not that old, but I've had beta, VHS, CD, DVD, cloud, what else comes after cloud, and how many times have those stories not been translated into the new medium? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to 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 believe that one can be the kind of the the single repository for 
all information for all time. Yeah, so it's definitely not that, but it's a thing that might help for now and you know, in the yeah. next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Women Talk Work. All the links from the discussion with Mick can be found at womentalkwork.com slash episode 7. If you'd like to hear more Women Talk Work, you can subscribe via iTunes or stream via the website. And be sure to like the Facebook page to receive notifications of new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be thrilled if you could share it with others that you think might enjoy it too. If you've got comments, feedback, or perhaps you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, you can contact me via the Women Talk Work website or tweet me at Claire A. Conroy. Thanks to YWCA Canberra for their support for the podcast through the Great Ideas Small Grants Program.